This podcast is not safe for work and will feature movie spoilers. It will feature scenes described of a graphic nature. It will contain language which most listeners may find offensive. Welcome to the podcast Under the Stairs. Hi everyone and welcome to the podcast Under the Stairs. This is episode 219. I'm your host Duncan McLeish. Welcome to the show. On episode 219 we do a little March themed episode. We like these themed episodes every now and again. We try and play a little alliteration in with it. So this is Mario Baba March. Now, not all the M's I wanted, but there's at least two M's in there and that'll work. Yeah, this is the Mario Bava March episode of the podcast Under the Stairs, where I sat down with the great director's filmography, scoured through and thought, is there a movie in here that I am really excited to chat about on this podcast? And to be honest, through kind of a stroke of luck and also at the same time, through kind of opportunistic laziness, uh, I have settled on Bay of Blood, aka Twitch of the Death Nerve, for a feature review on this episode. Now, you may be asking yourself, Duncan, opportunistic luck? What does that mean? Well, uh, as you may know out there, it's a kind of proto slasher slash giallo. Movie, so it is actually in the lineup for the Where to Begin with Jalo series, a brand new show on the Tea Parts Collective. So you could say that by picking this here and wetting your whistle on this, this might inspire you to go across and check out Where to Begin with Jalo, which today, because I'm all about synchronicity, I'm all about plugging everything I do, today dropped its first official episode on the Tea Parts Collective feed looking at Dario Argento's Bird with the Crystal Plumage. So, if you like what you hear here, which is me talking a little bit about Giallo, then you should jump across and check out where to begin with Giallo on the Teapots Collective. See, this is how you do things cross-marketing. Don't know if it's technically cross-marketing, if it's you that own both products, but it sounds good. I like the idea that I put out there and I'm sticking with it. And it's my show, so fuck it. So we're doing A Bay of Blood, or a.k.a. Twitch of the Death. Now, let's be honest, America got the better name. It was a video nasty as well, so it was one of those ones that was on the bad list um, in the UK, which does make me smile and does surprise me, considering some of the titles it was surrounded by on that list, uh, and some of the titles that also made that list, just in general. So that's what we're doing as part of Mario Bava March. Looking forward to this week, there is tons of content coming your way, ladies and gents. Like I said, on the Teapots Collective, dropping today, it'll be later today, you're getting the first full episode of Where to Begin with Jallo, a show which is going to take 10 movies over the course of 10 episodes and kind of give you a very good footing and ground, well, 
grounding is probably the best word, uh, and foothold, that makes more sense, in the subgenre that is Giallo. Uh, pick 10 movies which are progressively um, more Giallo esque. <laughs> don't even know where I'm going with this intro. Uh, but yeah, I'll, I'll make you, at the end of it, you'll have 10 movies. That will round out your knowledge and then from there it should give you a good foothold to go and check out other Jallos confident that you know your shit. So that's what that show is doing. On the podcast under the stairs feed coming this Thursday you get a bonus review of the new Blumhouse Invisible Man movie. Then on Saturday you're going to get a review of the Blumhouse the Hunt movie, because it's all Blumhouse now. That's all we're getting is Blumhouse movies. And then on Sunday, 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 we're looking at Return to Horror High as part of our 88 Films Slasher Classic series. So a stacked and packed week for you, ladies and gents. Now, if you are one of the people that checks out the old Facebook group page, you will want to have your eyes firmly secured to that page during the middle of this week where we do the official draw for what will be the next, <laughs> wait for it, Russian Roulette Franchise Retrospective for April. And so I'll be drawing franchises out of the hat and then over the weekend I'll be drawing names of podcasters assigned to movies. So nice and easy breezy stuff for you guys out there. I have four <laughs> franchises, kind of laughing because at least one of them is utter dog shit, but four franchises in the hat to be drawn and we will have a plethora of interesting guests coming and joining me in April to work through the franchise retro. So yeah, that will be happening as well. So let's do this. This is going to be a nice concise episode to kick your week off. Whether your week is at the office or at your home office or under severe self-quarantine. I'm hoping the podcast under the stairs brings a bit of levity and a bit of life to your week. Things are trying at the moment. Um, Social media is toxic as fuck. And to be honest, I think everyone is kind of done with this decade and it's only three months in. I understand that this show is a bit of escapism. I hope you enjoy it. I hope it entertains you. It takes your mind off your life for a wee half an hour. Why not? Um, so enjoy this review which is coming up after promos for shows that I love and of course the trailer for the movie. I'll be right back to discuss A Bay of Bud from 1971 coming right up right after this. Hey, feeling down? Feeling low? Not enough podcasts about movies in your life? Why not try? They must be destroyed on sight! The new podcast cure-all. Sure to get you right with the world and on a path to better living. We have exploitation, we have Italian horror, we have zombies, we have slashers, we have crime films, we have spaghetti westerns, we even have sci-fi and sex comedies. So take a dose of... They must be destroyed on sight! As needed, and let the hosts, Lee Russell, Daniel Harper, Paul Romali, and the odd guest host, cure what ails ya. Warning, may cause atrophy, African consumption, black fever, bone shave, chin puff, colic, cramp colic, Dropsy of the brain, elephantitis, grocer's itch, jaundice, mania, miasma, mortification, palsy, pox disease, rheumatism, scurvy, St. Anthony's fire, summer complaint, and worm fit in some people. Consult a physician before listening.
and welcome back ladies and gents so you've just heard the trailer for a bit of blood aka twitch of the death nerve from 1971 interestingly enough finally released in the uk in 1980 which is the reason it made the video nasties list because it came out much later uh, for distribution in the UK and then was met with the the censors of the time we were creating that list and as such kind of swung out there and it, it confuses me to an extent it's probably worth just talking about this up front I covered this with Andy Blockley way back in the day this is a early doing the nasty episode maybe well be blood maybe the first episode first or second anyway and we kind of come down on different <laughs> different sides of the coin on this one and he's not a big fan of it I think it's, it's fucking brilliant um, but what we talked about is how surprised we were that a movie like this made its way onto the list now it's hugely influential this movie must have played um, driving in America like maybe the mid 70s because there are a flux of um, early 80s slasher movies that recreate scenes from this. that basically completely stolen and ripped off and said, and you need to look no further than a little movie called Friday the 13th to see what I'm on about. It's clear that Sean S. Cunningham had been influenced by checking out Twitch of the Death Nerve. So... As it stands, you know, it had an impact that way, which kind of in some ways speaks to how tragic it was to be Mario Bava. He's a, he's a director that is now universally considered one of the best of his age um, and has legions upon legions of fans that just didn't really exist back then. There was no real big international push for him or recognition for how fucking ahead of his time he was. Um, how many directors he would go on and, and inspire in the States, whether it's people like Sean S. Cunningham, or directors like Joe Dante, who directly influenced Bava, specifically when it comes to lighting choices and styles in some of his movies from the 80s. When you look at something like The Burbs, for example, you can see a bit of Bava in there. So it's kind of it's kind of interesting to see, you know, a movie like this, which funnily enough comes out very early in the Jallo cycle I mean 71 is for all intents and purposes really the year after we kind of kick things off with a bang with the bird with the crystal plumage but Giallo as a genre had already existed for a good few years before and Bava himself being the originator of that kind of plays with this title in a way to try and in some levels kill off um, Jallo, which it does right at the very beginning of this movie and he's seen which is clearly a statement of intent and in a lot of respects preempts and births a lot of the ideas that would essentially become you know slasher movies this is set at a single location round a uh, kind of bay um, and the, you know there's a lot of kind of slasher-esque deaths here at this central location so, which will be used time and time again so when you sit and you watch this it's kind of from my point of view it's, it's interesting to see the effect that this guy already is thinking ahead well beyond the scope Jallo is just becoming popular and he's like right we need to be thinking away from this we need to be doing something different and moving away so that was a long introduction to get to this one. It's directed by Mario Bava. Um, the screenplay is written by Mario Bava along with Joseph McClee, who is a pseudonym for Giuseppe Z Z 
Carrillo. And of course I would have picked a movie with names that I can't pronounce because that's the sort of bastard I am. Uh, the screenplay was also by Filippo Antononi and the story itself by Dardano Sarecci. That guy has done everything. Like he's basically all the good jellos. That's his, his pen as usual in the background. And Gianfranco Barberi as well. There are other people included in here as working on, you know, uh, kind of screenplay collaboration, but we'll skip over them. The movie itself, Claudine Auger, Luigi Pacetti, um, or Pistilli, that reads better, uh, Claudio Camasso, Anna Marie Rosati, Chris Avram, uh, Leopold Trist, Laura Betty, Brigitte Ski, uh, Issa Miranda, Paolo Montaneri, Guido Bocciani, and some other folks. Really struggling with these names. Um, what I love about this movie, and we're going to get into a lot of this, but what I love about this is DP on this one as with quite a lot of Bava ones, is Mario Bava himself. And you can fucking tell because the camera is wild and it's doing some crazy ahead of it. This is some futuristic shit that Bava's pulling at the bag and he's using every trick in the book here. This guy came from not only like a, a... a director of photography background that's primarily what he did but like effects like that was his background as well lighting and effects were Bava's kind of bread and butter before he made the transition to being all out director um, and that is one of the big reasons this movie kind of rocks the second reason this movie kind of rocks is Stelvio Caprini um, who does the music for this the score for Bear Blood is fucking brilliant. It's playful, it's huge, it's fun, and it, it works in tandem with everything you're seeing on the screen, whether it's putting forward uh, scenes of tension or being playful, which this movie does quite a bit. Mario Baba had a real sense of humour when making movies, and he understood that at times, movies, specifically horror movies, could be a bit too serious, and he always felt that the audience should, for the most part, where possible, leave with a bit of kick in their step, a bit of a, you know, that was a great experience. And remember, at the end of it, after all, it's only a movie. And that explains quite a lot to do with the end. Now, I'm not going to spoil this movie, per se. I'm going to talk about some of the things that I really like about it. And I do recommend that you go and check it out. My understanding is that Arrow still own the rights for it in the UK, so you should still be able to purchase A Bay of Blood from Arrow Video or check it out on their streaming channel. Um, in the States, I think this one is potentially Blue Underground, I think has A Bay of Blood. Now, I might be wrong on that one. If any of those labels are listening, which I know they're not, you know what would be really cool is the, you know, spend a bit of time in giving us the super duper 4K work on this one. Because I think this maybe would look the fucking tits in 4K. Because the 2K scans that are available just now already look kind of amazing. And I think with a little bit extra, give us one of those deluxe passage, uh, packages. Because if ever there was a director that deserved it, it's our buddy Mario Bava. He deserves every single thing he Get. So yeah, um, let's do the synopsis for this one. The synopsis is the murder of a wealthy countess, which is erroneously deemed suicide, triggers a chain reaction of brutal killings in the surrounding Bay Area as several unscrupulous characters try to take over her large estate. 
So, I was kind of talking early on about the fact that, you know, this in a lot of respects um, kind of feels a bit like Bava himself is saying, you know what, I'm kind of done with Jallo. Um, or I, I've seen the writing on the wall and I know this is where the industry is going and I've been doing it since 64 and you're only starting to get into it now. And to be honest, I'm not, I'm not done with that. Um, so, you know, fuck this, I'm going to try something a bit gnarlier, I'm going to push things in a different direction. And that, I think, explains the opening kill. The opening kill in this movie has the kind of titular black glove killer that you would expect in most Jallos uh, go up and murder uh, the, the, the Countess. And then the camera pans away to reveal who the killer is before that killer himself is murdered. So it's almost as if the mystery of who the killer is is revealed right at the start. So he's giving you the reveal that you get at the end of every Jalo movie right at the beginning and then killing that character off as if to say, you know what, that's not this sort of movie, get yourself ready. So I think that whether it's accidental or not, I think that is, is a really good way to read this movie. And I've often said that the reason behind that is how impactious this movie is on the slasher genre. You know, a movie like this on Torso, for example, I think holds just as much weight as a movie like Black Christmas on, you know, the, the influx of movies that you get in the very early 80s. So, I mean, it's worth it's worth kind of counting that one off. The kills are really gnarly in this one and quite bloody and they're very playful and a lot of fun with a variety of different kind of... a variety of different weapons at the disposal. And Bava himself had worked with a couple of different we weapons and different kill styles, uh, whether you're watching a movie like uh, Hatchet for the Honeymoon, um or you're watching even things like uh, Blood and Black Lace. He's kind of travelled through using different sorts of weaponry, and this movie is no exception to that. We're out at, you know, this bay, there's plenty of objects we can use, uh, so we will use them all. And I think that adds a bit of, you know, a level of kind of fun and quirk to it, because even at this stage, 71, we're still kind of playing within the confines Argento has established a year before. So people aren't really being playful with weaponry and deaths and kills and all the rest. And also not setting things out, you know, well out with uh, Rome or like some sort of Milan or some big city in, in Italy. So he's kind of going out his way to do the anti-Jallo in a lot of respects, which I think works incredibly well for it. I also think um, you can tell that Bava is deploying almost every single trick in the book when it comes to this one because the movie is made for like a relatively small budget. A lot of these movies were at the time and Bava kind of stepping out of the role as being his own cinematographer which once again is something that Bava would do quite a lot, um, you know, to, to get things through. There would be scenes where he maybe not dp the whole movie, but would certainly jump behind the camera and do, do a bit of work here. He starts to innovate in a way which makes me really excited. He innovated with a lot of techniques to do like Vaseline on the screen, use of light and whatnot to give woozy dreamlike feelings to things. He also did a lot of painted glass 
to do effects as well. In the case of this one, he actually uses like uh, I think it was like maybe like a kid's like pull wagon, like a buggy wagon, um, for the tracking shots in this one, which is fucking nuts to think of that. He just didn't have the money to do it, so he just made his own kind of tracking equipment off a simple child's kind of toy pulley buggy. And I think this is just brilliant, you know what I mean? I think that's really clever in the way he would just adapt things to make it work and just go up, you know, just go all out and use what was what would make the shot work and then he could fix it afterwards or what would give him the opportunity to make a movie feel like there was more budget in place. So, yes, there's that part of things. So I, I, I do... You know, I, I liked I liked this uh, kind of these stories that that come out after the fact. Also, and the way that he would specifically try and save money. So, in the case of this movie here, he actually used like internal shots of like the the casting crew's homes, his home as well, as a way to substitute the rooms in the you know the the, the villa, as a way to try and kind of just sort of look at all oh, the how many rooms there are you know I can't just use my house which is infinitely smaller than this palatial palace so we'll just go around all the casting crew and take lots of different shots for that one. One of the infamous stories that exists behind the scenes for this movie is um, about Christopher Lee who had worked with Bava in the previous decade in a movie called The Whip and the Body, which, by the way, if you've never seen it, is the fucking tits. It's like this gothic, kind of perverse, uh, twisted little ghost story, and I love it, and everything it, it does. And Christopher Lee playing, you know, he's one of these ones where he's out with... Um, this is still during the time period he was doing lots of Dracula, by the way, and he didn't want to do any of that. Goes away, jumps to Italy, does the whip in the body, and it's fucking amazing. But Christopher Lee, obviously now being fully aware of Bava and kind of being friendly with him, uh, apparently saw the movie and uh, left. He, uh, the, the story goes that he left and was disgusted with how much violence was on the screen, which is kind of interesting. You can see where Christopher Lee ended up in some movies much later on easily, easily, um, you know, uh, violent scenes that were on par with this one. But it goes to show, I I genuinely think it's, you know, it's out there, it's, you know, it's dark and it's twisted um, in a way which 71 wasn't ready for. The following year, Last House on the Left comes out and then, you know, all bets are off, we can start to go violent. Within three years of this one, Texas Chainsaw Massacre's out and then horror has changed forever. We can never put the, you know, the the cork back in the bottle. After that, you know, we, we now have a, a new wave of really nihilistic, dark, sadistic 70s cinema and we just have to deal with that. We just have to roll and accept that's what it is. And Bay of Blood is weirdly, you know, on the cusp of that without necessarily going through. Speaking of things like... Um, you know, Last House on the Left. The movie was given the, you know, depending on where it played in the States, uh, the name Last House on the Left 2, which, you know, makes zero fucking sense. And that would also be used in the Night Train Murders as well, the Aldo Lado movie, uh, as a way to kind of sell that one as well. Oh, it's another Last House on the Left. Um, And this movie came out before Last House on the Left, which 
you know, kind of reminds me of the Anthropopicus, the beast, and the absurd number and and the way they do things. It's it's just weird how Italy feels like, and this is coming the day after releasing Zombie Flesh Eaters Four, aka Zombie Three, as a way to just any way to sell a movie or tag it into a franchise, even though it's not related at all as a way to just kind of push things through. And, I, you know, I, I kind of love that, you know, blatant, let's just make things up on the spot sort of attitude it has. Now, I spoke about the impact this movie had, specifically in slashers, but not only on slashers, but specifically the effect that it has on a movie like Friday the 13th. And in both Friday the 13th and Friday the 13th Part 2, there is um, a murder which is directly a riff in each movie from A Bay of Blood. And when you think of those movies being shot at camp, it's difficult not to think that that had been, you know, seen, so to speak. <laughs> you know, like, it's very difficult for me to think that Sean Cunningham was not aware of this. But furthermore, um, the Countess, who, uh, you know, it's, it's a kind of mock suicide, so to speak, that she dies at the beginning, actually writes, um, you know, February 13th, it's all over, I'm tired, my life no longer has meaning. And I always thought that felt pertinent as well. The fact that you have, like, specifically the mention of a 13th of the month and then, you know, some nine years later, ten years later, you're getting the Friday the 13th movies which have 13 in the title and directly use a similar setup to do with the Bay location and, you know, in each of the first two movies, deaths directly shot from this. Feels more than just a little bit of a coincidence. It feels like, you know, they're, they're kind of, well, no one's going to see this Touch of the Death Nair movie that played a decade ago, so uh, we can kind of, and it was a different time, we didn't have the internet or anything like that, we can kind of just, you know, take things from it, rework them in our movies, and who'll fucking know? And by the time someone knows, you know, this movie's going to be out for, for a long time, um, and that'll work. Plus, you maybe only ever, you know, people weren't owning, like, Twitch of the Death Nerve in 1973, you know what I mean? This played round and that was it done. Speaking about how the movie played and then was done, um, there's a, another great story about Argento, who was very much in later life a friend and almost a prodigy of Mario Bava himself but um, IMDB has this little fact that I absolutely love and I had to jump back on to find it because I read it out on the Doing the Nasty episode and it makes me very happy uh, is that Dario Argento loved the film so much he had a friend who was a projectionist steal the print of the film during its first run in Italy the theatre ended up showing Hatchet for the Honeymoon from the year before to replace the stolen print for the remainder of the film's run there which was about a week and a half according to Argento and he still possesses that print of the film to this day. So imagine being so enamoured with another man's work, someone that you really look up to that you manage to steal the first run print that's playing at your local cinema uh, forcing the cinema to play a different movie entirely so you can own it and still have that to this day. I mean that's love, it's also a bit selfish, Dario Argento that's a bit of a prick move if I'm honest but it, it shows so much love and consideration um, and how much of an impact, I mean, is you watch early Argento and you are seeing, like, a morphed version of, you know, Bava at his peak. It's why my fucking nutsack is tickled so much when I watch a movie like Inferno and you know that Bava worked 
directly on. Maybe the coolest shots on that one just makes me warm and fuzzy inside. Because, like, two of my all-time favourite directors collaborating together, which, I mean, is fucking amazing, and why not? So, yeah, the kills are great. The score is great. The setting's great. Cinematography is playful. Um, and on top of that, you have all the weird and wonderful ways that the movie is marketed. I think it's a kind of triumph and it's top tier Bava for me and I know a lot of people would disagree with that statement. I know a lot of people that think this is maybe kind of low hanging fruit for Bava as a way to quickly get a movie out in between doing other projects and the fact that he himself would go on and do Giallo post A Bay of Blood kind of maybe um, maybe means that any statement Bava was trying to make about moving away from Giallo maybe is more in the eye of the beholder nowadays, maybe putting too much of a kind of narrative into the production than was actually there to begin with. And I can kind of see that. He did go off and do Giles, but at the same time, so did Argento. Argento jumped away and did Suspiria and, you know, Inferno, but would come back and do Tenebrae. So there, I think there are occasions where that is going to happen. I think there are occasions where, you know, directors want to try and test the water and see how things go. And A Bay of Blood wasn't a hugely successful movie. Did all right. Critically, it was received quite well. But it wasn't a huge movie. So maybe he leaned back into what felt more familiar to him, what you could guarantee to get made. You have to remember that as well. Directors want to make movies. And if that means you have to capitulate sometimes and make things which are a bit safe. I mean, look at directors like George A. Romero, who had to keep coming back to doing zombie movies because at the end of the day, that's all he could really get funding for. And it's a sad state of affairs, but that's just the way sometimes things go. You unfortunately get pigeonholed in a way that the only way you can get the money to make the movies that you want is to make the movies the studio wants. So there's that as well. And yeah, you could use that, but I think when it comes to the movies that set Bava apart as a really interesting like next level director it's difficult not to look at things like um, you know Black Sabbath or Black Sunday as being prominent entries in you know their respective subgenres whether it be an anthology that plays with gothic horror and floats the idea of colour in a giallo um, or the girl who knew too much you know these movies are, are hugely important for sure even when you're looking at something along the lines of blood and black lace which is the kind of the one that sets the template for color um, and violence and the black glove killer for a giallo i think it's safe to say that if you're including all those as setting a trend and a, a kind of tone and being ahead of it that a bay of blood definitely deserves to be in that conversation purely because of what he does I know some people hate the ending to this movie. If you do watch it, I'd be interested to think, well, to find out what you think of it. Um, and if you want to take part in the conversation on that one, A Bay of Blood will be one of the later titles we will be covering in Where to Begin with Jallo. This is a movie that I think is fucking brilliant. I can come back to it time and time again. And when it comes to giving it a review and a grade for this show, it is a four out of five. It's not the best thing Bava ever did, but by God, when Bava is working with micro budgets and small insular stories and left to his own devices, can this man not rattle out a phenomenal movie to be sure? Right, I'm going to take my final break of this show. When I come back, I'm closing it out right after this. 
You're listening to the podcast Under the Stairs. And you've been listening to the podcast Under the Stairs. This has been episode 219. We have been looking at Mario Bava March with a special little review of a Bay of Blood, aka Twitch of the Death Nerve from 1971. I hope you enjoyed that review. Um, whilst it was light on content, it's mostly because, well, content for the film anyway, it's because I want you to actually go and check it out. I could tell you everything that happens in it, or you could go back and listen to the Doing the Nasty episode where I do that, or you go and watch the movie and see how fucking right I am about how great it is. So there's that. How about that? Go and do that. That sounds like a, let's be honest, we're all going to be self-quarantined within the next couple of weeks anyway. So when you find yourself with that self-quarantine, watch a bit of blood. It is worth every second of your time. There's a multitude of ways to check out podcasts under the stairs. You can check us out in places like Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Beaker, um, oh fuck, um, Podcast Addict, Google Play, like loads. All I'm going to say to you is if you are checking us out and you have typed in podcasts under the stairs, just make sure you subscribe and that way you never miss any of the content we put out. While you're also subscribing to podcasts on that device, subscribe to the Teapots Collective and that way you get the shows that I'm putting out over there as well. You can visit the website, teapotscast.com. Support the show by buying posters or pins, limited availability on both of those from teapotscast.bigcartel.com. You can visit me on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash groups forward slash teapotscast or check out the group page for the Teapots Collective which is facebook.com forward slash teapotscast. You can interact with myself and the Baz on the twin prongs of social media sex and it's Instagram and Twitter, both can be followed at teapotscast. Check us out on the Flick Chat app, it's free and available for you on Android and iOS. Our join code is teapotscast. The podcast under the stairs will return to you on Thursday with a bonus review of the brand new Blumhouse movie, The Invisible Man. Inspect a... or inspect? <laughs> That's not right. Expect, sounds better, Duncan, a non-spoiler and spoiler review for that movie. But until then, wherever you are, what the time zone is and whatever you're up to in this big bad world of ours, please take care of yourselves out there. This is Duncan McLeish broadcasting live from under the stairs and I am signing off. <laughs>